Hello and welcome to the Eastern Front. My name is Delbo Rohaj and I'm a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. I'm joined by my friends Giselle Donnelly, I'm also at AEI, and Yulia Zhoja with the Middle East Institute, Georgetown, and George Washington Universities. On our podcast, we talk about the many challenges to European peace and security that have erupted along a line running from the Baltic Sea to the Black Sea, the Eastern Front and about why those matter to the United States. Uh, in this episode, it's just the three of us. We decided to record a special in response to the events on uh, Friday and Saturday, 23rd and 24th of June in Russia, which involved a parent coup attempt or, or, or mutiny by, by the Wagner Group. Uh, and we'll try to reflect on the significance of those events. If you enjoy this episode, please consider subscribing, rating, and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you. I should also say that we are recording this episode on Sunday, the 25th of June, at 7 in the morning Eastern Time. So events might change between the time of recording and the release of the episode. Nevertheless, let's try to dive right in. I suppose my opening question for, for, for the three of us is, what what the hell was that? What was it? Was it was it a coup attempt or the, was it a mutiny? How come there seemed to have been no consequences for those involved? Well, I think mutiny is probably the closest term. Um, Can we just pause here right now? And when Putin said that mutiny. I thought, does Prigozhin know what that means or does he have to Google it? <laughs> because it was a very precise term, right? It means an uprising of the armed forces or similar, but yeah. But with the intent to govern, uh, you know, to replace, it certainly isn't clear uh, that uh, Prigozhin personally or Wagner sort of corporately had that intent, let alone that capability uh, or, or ambition. I think we should we should just the the and and I confess I'm just summing the best of what I've read uh, from a whole host of sources. But the the thing that put this ball in motion was the decision by the Russian military to try to basically disband Wagner uh, to offer <laughs> without very much choice, uh, contract to Wagner soldiers to join the regular Russian army. I don't know if that really was intended to uh, take advantage of Wagner manpower or to push Wagner sort of out of business, uh, at least in Ukraine. And one, of the, one of the questions that we might speculate about is what will happen to Wagner Global. Uh, you know, it's multiple operations in the Middle East and Africa and the like, where it has been an effective tool of, of the Russian state. Uh, but the the long simmering feud between senior Russian, the, the Russian conventional military and Wagner seemed to have come to a head. And, you know, I think it's reasonable to presume that that was the trigger that pushed Pogosian into uh, uh, into action. And the other thing here is that was an order, right? That was given a few days ago, a few days before these eventful 24 Correct. hours. And what is certain here is that 
if this order would have been followed, it would have cut significantly Prigozhin's personal um, power and personal fortune, right, um, wealth, um, because he has been with the permission of Putin or probably a direct relationship has been permitted to build the Wagner forces over the last nine years since um, the, the first invasion of Ukraine and um, uh, in recruit over the last year across um, Russian territory and lead military operations within this full-scale invasion. So this order would have really cut him down and with the result that we have now, of course, we know that either or bo both can be lying, but with the deal that, that Prigozhin has declared they have now, and the Kremlin has confirmed, he still loses a lot of his power and wealth. Um, because we, just to repeat what I think many um, of our listeners already know, this deal includes the mercenaries that have participated in the uprising or whatever that was to get amnesty. We don't know what next. Um, they will not be incorporated into the conventional armed forces. And also, how can you decide? How can you establish who has participated and who hasn't? And the rest, I, they don't specify where, just the rest of Wagner members or contractors are supposed to be incorporated, again, according to the very same order. So that, and then, and then of course, Brikozhin himself is supposed to go to Belarus, where I don't know what he can be doing as a warlord. <laughs> um, but, uh, but that means that still, according to what we know, a lot of his power and wealth is uh, being canceled out by with Putin's blessing. But at the same time, Putin is certainly not as powerful as he used to be 24 hours before this happened, right? I mean, there's just so many things that I think we, we, we really don't know at this stage and might become clear in the, in the coming days, including what this means for, for, for Prigozhin personally and for the future of the, of the Wagner group. Uh, there've been you know like these, these these events i think has shown us both the sort of you know the, the best um the best of, of of our reliance on sort of social media and, and and sort of quick information being spread in the uh quick pieces of sort of new information being spread in information space and also the worst of that which is that really that entire space was flooded with mostly nonsense and, 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 and sort of people just making stuff up all the all the all the, all the time throughout Friday and, and Saturday and, and, and I think in, in contrast to some of the more elaborate theories of what was going on, one meme captured the reality quite well, which was this picture from a film in which one of the characters says um, that these are not very bright guys and things got out of hand. And I think that is probably what, what, what happened. I mean, I'm inclined to take at face value the, the, the notion that this was just about this conflict between Prigozhin and, and the MOD, about these contracts, about the sort of relative status of, 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 of the Wagner group and Prigozhin himself relative to the rest of the of the sort of security defense apparatus rather than, than an attempt to, 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 to really mount a real challenge to, to, to Putin's power, even though 
the latter is what effectively happened. Um, a couple of things. Uh, obviously, the uh, attempt to absorb Wagner into the Ministry of Defense, you know, must have had Putin's blessing, right? Uh, exactly. So, even though Putin was not center stage on that. Secondly, the, the Russian military and the state may have a challenge to demobilize or, you know, whatever they're going to do with the Wagner superstructure. I, I'm not sure we should take that for granted. First of all, I mean, although they suffered horrible casualties around Bakhmut over the last year, they did sort of hold together as an organization and their uh, little anabasis to M Moscow was, you know, a fairly impressive military operation. They moved a long way really rapidly. They shot down, you know, almost 10 Russian aircraft, which is, you know, another thing that uh, is going to be, I think, a lingering sore of some part, not easily swept under the carpet. So, you know, I think sort of making Wagner disappear is is not necessarily going to be, uh, you know, with a snap of the fingers or something like that. You know, it's, it's, it's an organization that's been around now for a pretty long time. It has limited capabilities, but real capabilities. Uh, no doubt Prigozhin himself, who has not shown up in Belarus, uh, at least as of this morning, you know, I'm sure somebody will be gunning for him, but getting at him could be difficult. And the Wagnerites were cheered on the way out of Rostov. I think that that to me is probably the most disturbing sort of attribute of 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 of, of this entire situation, the kind of rock star status that he enjoyed in Rostov and people sort of spontaneously hugging Wagner soldiers and giving them uh, food. And Yeah, what exactly is it that they like about that? Well, so there was a, there was a fascinating piece in the in the Guardian on or specifically on this when when the, the the Moscow correspondent spoke to people in 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 Rostov and 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 they said that he you know he tells the truth there is the sort of you know populist challenge to the establishment aura around Prigozhin that that that, that these people seem to like and the fact that he's a, he's a criminal and mass murderer. Yeah. And, and 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 a sort of you know all around sociopath doesn't seem to bother them. Yeah, that's that's the problem, isn't it? <laughs> uh, well, that and that doesn't really distinguish him from the government per se. Yeah, he just has a different style, and he's a bit more visual about the sledgehammers he uses on people. Correct. Um, but but to me, so I do think I, I think for a fact. There's no, I mean, we know now that U.S. officials have been briefed. There's a danger. A few days ago, they were saying mid-June. Well, mid-June was like a week ago. Um, but uh, so I, I hope that some people knew about this, especially our intelligence service. But, uh, but, but beyond that, in the public sphere, no one could have known. It was a big surprise and quite a tour of the last 24 hours. And until this happened, I was on the side that was given the given that the putin prigozhin relationship has been a personal one throughout these years that prigozhin does owe putin his power and his wealth he is an oligarch of putin's making with putin's blessing and we know there's a personal relationship and so i always assumed that and he continued prigozhin to do that never 
even throughout these 24 hours, never insult Putin directly. He always insults Gerasimov and Shoigu, um, the, the chief of staff and the uh, minister of defense. Um, and, and so I always assume there's this relationship in which Putin believes that he has him under control, Prigozhin, um, that he uses perhaps, this is now a speculation, Prigozhin to, um, first of all, portray himself as uh, moderate, but also to push the armed forces that are underperforming in Ukraine from his point of view. And I kept staying with this scenario through the first few hours of these 24 hours we're talking about, but I think the last few when the drive was on and they were sh- shooting down helicopters and planes and and kind of taking with spectacular speeds towns or going through them at least. To me, this must have been a moment in which Putin must have lost control because he couldn't have oh, wanted this to happen. It makes him look weak. So I think it's mostly about Prigozhin's um, status and future, but but it has affected power in the Kremlin. I would I would even go further than that. I mean, I would and and think maybe I'll look like a fool in a few years time, but but I think this is the beginning of the end for Putin. Like if you are running a dictatorship, that you have to run a very tight ship. And his promise twenty three years ago was that there wouldn't be a second of power vacuum in the country. Clearly, something happened yesterday that defied that. He reacted, you know, with this with this sort of harsh threats and 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 sort of really angry rhetoric in the in the in in, in that speech, and yet it took I mean this ordeal to materialize, which sort of allows Prigozhin to you know get away with what he has done. I I I just don't see how like things in Russia can go back to how how they how 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 they were. I think it sort of sets. A precedent, at the very least. I, I have an alternative uh, theory um, th- th- that uh, suggests that the idea of Putin as absolute ruler was a, always overstated a bit. Look, the Prigozhin Wagner phenomenon has been going on for some time, so this is like you know the rise up of the. Uh, <laughs> this is almost like a Mario Puzo. Uh, you know, uh, crime family novel. The other sort of really interesting thing about the last couple of days has been the fact that, uh, and I, I don't know exactly how far this really went, but uh, Ramzan Kadyrov mobilized his Chechens to come defend uh, the Duke of Moscow. <laughs> so, I mean, this is like, you know, this is like Don Cossack's uprising, and uh, you know it, it has a, a and it what it, it does reveal is that this that the centralized power that Putin supposedly had a monopoly on it is either has eroded really rapidly, or or maybe wasn't even that strong, you know, to to begin with. I think we have to ask, you know, really how much. Of what we see in the outside of Russia is the has been over the years, the result of a common interest amongst the various gangsters, and that really underneath the surface there were always uh, competing factions. Perhaps Putin was at the center of that, and the strongest and the the slimiest or you know most acute wheeler dealer amongst them. 
Yet uh, the sense of stability was from the get-go at heart of the sort of Putinist social contract relative to the sort of chaos of the 1990s. And, and I think like, throughout Putin's reign, like he would use chaos in neighboring countries, very often sort of propped up by, by Russia itself in places like you know Georgia, Moldova, to, to essentially contrast that with the sort of stability that he could sort of provide and guarantee for the for the for the for the for the Russian people. So I think this is and I guess like maybe this has always been a sort of world of a country of sort of oligarchs and warlords and, and sort of relationships that man that, that that Putin simply managed from the from 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 the top. But if he sort of exposed as being unable to do that, I think that's that's really bad bad news. And and, and, and including Giselle, you sort of referred to that rapid advance towards Moscow. I mean, that, that was yes. just breathtaking. The speed with the which they were driving on that road. <laughs> little to no resistance. I mean, you have to wonder whether there were people in the sort of wider security defense apparatus who were actually on their side and were happy with what was happening rather than... Because, like, you know, like in a dictatorship, like if something like this happens, like you have to snap back really badly and you have to, I guess, like kill a lot of people. Like if you are a sort of, you know, dictator who... Who wants to re- like you know? You want to behave like Assad? Like we didn't see an Assad-like response. It has really revealed his weakness. Those hours have really revealed Moscow's weakness, and and of course by by uh, connection his. And to me, it was impossible to organize that whole thing without having some support from some intelligence service. I mean, I, I know this is a lot of speculation, but we do know that for a very long time in Russia, intelligence services, secret services have been very powerful. I mean, Putin himself comes from one, and so many before him and after him were, before you know becoming prime ministers, were head of the FSB, KGB, whatever. And, and we know that there's a very clear connection between Wagner forming in the GRU, the military intelligence service uh, in Russia. And so to me, that's um, that that was indeed, I think, Dalibor, you're using the right word, breathtaking, how open that space was. I, I think we just got another snapshot of how hollow the Russian military is, though. Okay, they're throwing as many resources as they can spare into manning what is still a very long front, uh, in Ukraine. It, it is also notable that uh, Prigozhin stopped well short of Moscow. I mean, still several hundred kilometers. He covered a lot of the open ground uh, on the way mm. to Moscow. But, you know, whether he... Do you think that was based on his assessment of capabilities? Uh, I think some of that might have been the case. The idea that, that I'm not sure that he would have had the combat power to shoot his way into the Kremlin by any stretch of the imagination. I mean, you know, Putin, like all strong men, keeps a strong palace guard. Uh, yeah. So the correlation of forces probably would have shifted the closer he got to... Moscow. Makes sense. You know, the other thing that I think is worth um, dissecting a bit is how how problematic this has gotten in the eyes of the Russians too. They were pretty shocked by the events and, um, and the fact that we kind of know that he fled, you know, not many flee Moscow in these circumstances. Um, but, I've got a pressing dental appointment in St. Petersburg. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> we're under the Valdai. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, uh, uh, 
but but the other thing is to me the the symbolism but also the indication of how problematic all of this has been is that at least on the surface of it it needed a strictly domestic issue needed implication and interference and aid from abroad so erdogan <laughs> In the form of Lukashenko, right. you gotta be kidding me. Well, so, so, what do you think of that? Like, uh, is, is is it even conceivable that Lukashenko played a material part in negotiating some kind of a deal? Like, to, to me, that that's just far fetched. Like, he's a like, he's a muppet who's been sort of hanging. Well, and was on, he, like, he, was he like, about? I don't know. Like about well, to die two weeks ago. For, I mean. Uh... Yeah, I, I mean, yeah, I think he's still up for something, but but visually, this looks like they needed help from from abroad. And fact is, Erdogan w called Putin and said, "Hey, man, are you all right?" And then it turns out Lukashenko was next to him, and it was Erdogan who declared, "We're going to sort this all out. Don't you worry, pal." And Lukashenko was at least visibly sorting out and making this deal with Prigozhin on the phone while Erdogan was sitting next to him. So it has an entire Eastern flank dimension to this. I mean, so, so you have to wonder, um, just, just one small caveat to, to this question of weakness of Putin as he emerges from this. I mean, you know, we still don't really see what the full consequences are. And it is possible that Prigozhin will, you know, be defenestrated after his arrival in Minsk or that something will you know slip in get slipped into his tea or, or that he'll be sort of speculating you know, on that yeah turned into mash like with a with a sledgehammer uh, in a sort of you know old school Wagner way I neither of them will have to will neither of them will sleep safely right I mean they must think at this point that they have it out for each other I think that's right but but I wanted to talk a little bit about the the sort of wider implications of this for the war itself and 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 the sort of weakness of the Russian defense security apparatus that this has exposed so so if if Wagner can just you know get in a bunch of trucks and drive you know to 20 kilometers close to Moscow. Hey, what does that tell us about the the opportunities that the Ukrainians might have to to wreak havoc? Well, and the, and the, the uh, you know uh, Russian Liberation Front, I can you know can on a smaller scale likewise run rampant uh, along Russia's borders. Yeah, like if they if, you know if they were given more armor. And yeah. and then more sort of support, like you know, they they can get on the highway too and drive somewhere. Well, you wonder, you know, again, why we in the West in Washington, in particular, are so self-deterred, so skittish about wakening the Russian bear. I mean, first first of all, this is not a situation where nuclear weapons. Uh, availed Putin of anything, uh, but it just shows what a shambles, uh, what a shambles the Russian security, or you know, at least the Russian military is. I'm afraid of this too. I just wanted to build a little bit on on Giselle, and maybe I'm I'm a bit pessimistic, but um, I'm afraid that the fearers of escalation, shall we call them that, wherever they are, they will use like they do with everything. Um, they will use these happenings to actually push to say, well, 
Ukraine is fine. They don't need any more. They'll sort this out sooner or later. The drawdown is over. The presidential elections are coming. This is not a popular thing. People are afraid. And so let's just um, let's just slow down the support. When to me, the only solid lesson out of this is something that I saw repeated by both Zelensky at the same time with people like the former foreign minister of Russia, Kozirev, um, who said the one thing, it's so unpredictable, we don't know what to do, it's clear Russia is very weak, um, but the one thing we need to do is to give Ukraine all the weapons it needs to push out Russia because they're defending the eastern flank, they're defending European security, and we can't have any more of this. Let's not prolong this. That's, to me, the only certainty that I have but I am afraid that not everyone will see it like we do. Yeah, but uh, I mean, first of all, those people—that's their answer, regardless of what the you know. The, when Russia looks strong, they say we should cut a deal with Russia. When Russia looks weak, they say we should cut a deal with Russia. <laughs> so, um, or the you know, we should be worried about us. So I suppose I have a sort of like a more sort of open-ended analytical question, particularly for, for Giselle, which has to do with the sort of opening that this can provide for the Ukrainian counteroffensive. So, so I wonder to what extent, like, you know, like my intuition is like, you know, if, if Russians are fighting between themselves, you know, that's all the better for, for the Ukrainians, they'll be distracted. Like, do, do you think this reveals, um, you know, like sort of divisions in military leadership, chain of command, ability to sort of conduct operations. Like if, you know, like assuming these were like the part of the, uh, you know, general staff might be in favor of, 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 of Prigozhin's demand, might dislike Gerasimov, would be inclined to, you know, go along with with his his coup if it were indeed a coup and, 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 and had been carried through. Uh, and if, 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 if that's the case, like what does that, Tell us about the ability of like Ukrainians to sort of strike through and 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 and, and sort of exploit that. Well, uh, let's, let's just say it's certainly not going to be a morale builder for uh, the poor Mobics who are trapped in yeah. the trenches, uh, you know, getting shelled. Uh, and there were some reports uh, over the weekend of uh, Russian troop surrenders, mm-hmm. uh, and I, you know, I I do think that the Ukrainians had just from their sort of probing attacks o- over the last couple of weeks, or if they have not already, are getting close to the point where they've found or and or created some soft spots uh, in the Russian lines of defense. That you know, there's, There was a, a question how long the Russians would be able to put up a coherent uh, defense across a very broad front. And as uh, Phil O'Brien said in our most recent podcast, the Ukrainians have yet to really commit the bulk of their uh, high quality forces. So those things, I th- you know, don't know how, don't know where exactly. Yeah, I think you're, you're correct that this is, this is only good news for the Ukrainian uh, counteroffensive. I was wondering too, I mean, even if, you know, the, um, the fear of uh, escalation cabal across Western capitals, uh, you know, will never go away. This may reassure people more broadly that Ukraine's prospects for ultimate victory 
uh, have only increased. And I think like once that information kind of like trickles down like to the level of every mobic, as you as you put it, I think that's the that's the end of it, right? Like I'm a big believer in Timur Kuran's idea of information cascades, right? Like in a, in a sort of dictatorship, like you never know as a private person whether your privately owned belie- held beliefs are shared by others. Like once once in a while, there are events like this one that may expose that you know like your understanding that you know we are losing this war is shared by everybody else and once that becomes common knowledge it's the end game and it typically happens very rapidly so that's why you know dictatorships appear very stable until suddenly everybody's in the streets so i don't know like if if there's like 1918 scenario of like mass surrenders whether that's in the cards, but I wouldn't rule it out. Also, I think it's just good to get the failure, quote unquote, of the counteroffensive out of the headlines yeah. a little bit. That works to Ukraine's advantage. That and to have it contrasted with the uh, uh, you know chaos uh, on the Russian side of the fence. I can I ask you guys a couple of questions. I'm interested in the sort of wider reputational uh, damage that R- Russia may have sustained across Europe, and uh, also it makes me, you know, Xi Jinping must be wondering what the hell he signed up to in his lifetime partnership with uh, with Putin. I, I think. I mean, I, I'm curious to hear Dalibor on this too. I think in Western, I think in Central and Eastern European capitals. There isn't that much of a shock because um, history just, just here Russians being Russians. has a <laughs> well, no, but it's no, of course not. But but the memory of thirty years ago, even of nineteen seventeen, is a lot more lived through, is a lot more acute, and so people have more of a reference point, including through what they heard and the family, etc. So they're like, okay, the Russians are at it again. It might be a coup. Um, it wouldn't be the first time. Uh, in in the West, however, where um, this has been so amplified by the fears of escalation, but also by others that have been doing such deals with the Kremlin and Gazprom and all of that, that Russia is this super powerful entity. I think there, the shock of what happened and how ridiculous Putin has looked over the last, these 24 hours, will need a while to sink in. And I, I don't know what results this will entail. Maybe a little bit more courage to help Ukraine, hopefully. And then when it comes to China, I just saw before we um, logged onto this um, episode, onto this recording, that the deputy foreign minister of, um, of Russia has been sent to Beijing to brief and I think Boy, Xi there's a mission to volunteer no, for. He's like, he's like on report. Uh, but but I, I don't think Xi and the establishment in Beijing has been under so many illusions. I think it's a bit like the McCain quote for them. It's like a glorified gas station. I, I don't think they've seen Russia as equal partners for a long time. And I think through this full-scale invasion, that somewhat equal partnership has been reduced. And through this full-scale invasion, now through the last 24 hours, the force rapport is even a more significant one. The last country that I would add here, because it is important and it is out of the West and the East, 
somewhere in the middle is Turkey. The relationship between Erdogan and Putin is really important, has always been. Erdogan has remained, though a NATO member, one of the few Putin friends. When the relationship from the downing of the plane into the full-scale invasion has changed rapport too before Russia was clearly the senior partner. Now it's more of an equal standing. The fact that Erdogan directly or indirectly facilitated something, called Putin, Putin took his call in these very strange hours, tells me that with the Turks, it might be trickling in even more that Russia is not as powerful as it used to be, and maybe that will change their view on Black Sea politics, Black Sea security, and and how much they're backing Russia. That could be a good thing, and that could be a bad thing. You know, if it pushes Erdogan back in an Ottoman-esque direction, thinks that there's a power vacuum that he can fill, uh, which is just the sort of miscalculation that he seems prone to from from time to time. I mean, there are, if Russia is perceived to be substantially weaker than many people thought, I mean, I think that has just a lot of implications. The the Central Asian autocrats who have been, you know, made anxious by the Ukraine invasion and have, you know, been kicking up their heels a little bit, seem more likely to do that. Yeah, I'm sure... Part of the expectation, I think, on the Chinese part must have been, well, yeah, it's just a gas station, but at least it'll be run efficiently and we can get lots of gas for a low price. Now, you you know, I think the Chinese, if, if you know, if there's some greater fracturing inside Russia, A, that could, you know, be an incentive for, you know, further Chinese immigration into the Russian Far East, blah, 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 blah. And, you know, would they trust Russia to run the energy transfer enterprise in the way that the, that the Chinese depend on? I, I just don't know. I just think this puncturing of the Putin frontal glacis is uh, is going to play out in, in ways. I think you're both... both... The 100% correct in sort of emphasizing that this um, strengthens Russia's junior status in that partnership with, with China. We'll have um, Poland's former foreign minister, Radek Sikorski, on the podcast in a few weeks' time. He just wrote a piece for the Foreign Affairs magazine on Europe's grand strategy. And, and, and one of the sort of interesting rabbit holes he gets into is this question of, of the Russia-China relationship, where he says that maybe... If Ukraine does win the war, it not only sends a deterrent signal to, to, to China regarding its ambitions in the South China Sea, but, but it might actually whet its appetite towards Russia's natural resources and, and, and maybe even control of Russia's territory. I mean, there are historic disputes in the Far East between between the two countries that could be resurrected. And so if she wants to leave some kind of historic legacy, it's, it, rather right, it's, than... It's be easier to take know, Vladivostok than to take Taipei. Something very dangerous. Like you, well, it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's named something else on Chinese maps anyway. Uh, so, but, but in terms of the, the European debate, I think this, has, this is going to have a very sort of salutary effect on, on the conversation because there are... Russia appeasers, there are people who sort of look up to, to Putin as a, as a sort of strongman to be emulated on the far right. I think many of the talking points 
have been rendered ineffective or or just much less compelling by the events of the past couple of days. I mean, everybody knows who Prigozhin is. The fact that he has just so much leverage over Putin uh, that 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 he can sort of do that, defy him. I, I think it sort of erodes erodes that sort of simplistic simplistic picture. So. So, so I think, like in 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 the sort of European space, this has been overall a a, a very very healthy development. Maybe maybe to to wrap up, I think it you know has, as you suggest, ideological implications. The the you know sort of uh, populist, nationalist, national conservative, you name it. The the right has been enraptured by the idea of having a strong leader uh, as a way of you know, leading a, a moral revival, a social revival as well. And, uh, you know, Putin was sort of the poster boy, is the sort of poster boy for this. It just seems to me that that uh, trope has been hold below the waterline. Somebody very early on in the in this in this situation retweeted this old article in the Imprimis magazine, which is the sort of free sort of magazine distributed by Hillsdale College from back in 2017, where there was this article praising Putin as a leader rooted in tradition and sort of attuned to Russia's true character and, and all this kind of blathering nonsense. And, and like when you sort of look at it through the prism of the reality of, of Russia's being basically a sort of mafia that also has a state and and and, and it, it just looks beyond ridiculous. I also want to point out one thing here that is maybe not that grand strategy, more relevant on an individual level, but I find that the last few hours up to two days, if I had any doubts about someone in the West, including some of the pundits, whether they were in a clear financial connection to the Kremlin or not close to Putin or not, I just had to check their Twitter account because you cannot delete tweets. And uh, and so I've had a few confirmations across the transatlantic world that we look at um, for for myself. But I think Your names. no names. <laughs> what This is an, a nerdy activity that our audience can do for themselves if they had <laughs> if they had any doubts about anyone. But but it does. You know, if you were out there, a lot of Russian Russian experts within Russia, too, have sort of lost their bearing. I mean, um, they didn't know how to deal with it. And then if you, you know, went out of your way to declare solidarity with um, Putin, that's interesting, right? <laughs> um, within and outside of Russia. Well, the thing that is most satisfying to me about all this, these Twitter hot takes that collapse as fast as they are typed is that at least some people will have sort of given up I think Michael McFall, the former ambassador to Russia, is just sort of, you know, first of all, he was overcome with this is the end of Putin, you know, joy and enthusiasm, which he has every right to wish for. But, but, but at some point yesterday, he just had to say, oh, man, oh, man, I don't know what's going on. <laughs> And so, uh, well, well, that decision not to continue towards Moscow was very anti 
climactic. I well, I, 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 we were ready. I didn't see to, any of this coming. Okay. Serious, serious Saturday night celebration. Yeah, and... yeah. I celebrated anyway, and uh, I cheered for a mutiny because I thought <laughs> this was the the cheer of the day. But my favorite, Dalibur mentioned earlier, his favorite meme, and of course the one with the popcorn um, in on the Ukrainian uh, front lines. Um, that's very good too. But my favorite sort of comment was by a a sociologist uh, in in a Eastern Front language who said, "I'm I'm really afraid now to go shopping on a Saturday. I have to get groceries, um, but I'm afraid to go because I'm afraid I'm going to miss Moscow falling." <laughs> <laughs> and so, and so it was very anticlimactic when he just stopped 200 kilometers um, off Moscow and said, "Now I'm done." And I I saw it as it was unfolding. Um, the the first t- time he, his comments, Prigozhin's comments were uh, were retweeted, and I'm like, this can't be, this cannot like really 200 kilometers. But I guess from a military point of view, as Giselle reminded us, it does make. I sense. mean, that did carry a sense of sort of unreality, which characterized there's lots of things in Russia. It sort of brought back memories of like Peter Pomerantsev's book and and these sort of things that are never quite you know what they appear to be. Yeah. Why don't, we, why don't we end there? It, you know, usually we end on a bleak note. Sometimes we end on a very high note, which is meant to mask all the bleak notes. But it, I think it's appropriate to end on this note of absurdity. I, I think from, certainly from you know, Bayesian perspective, like the odds of, 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 of this war ending well for Ukraine has gone up and, and the odds of Putin leaving sooner rather than later have gone up as well and that should give us some optimism and i think it's also worth watching in the next few days i know it's not going to be anything spectacular as we that, that is don't, I, don't say that <laughs> well i mean on the front lines of ukraine uh but but i have seen reports including by the armed forces um that they are progressing on several directions and so um, we know that there's now a significant delay in um, what the Ukrainian armed forces are making public. And we know there was chaos on the front lines yesterday. And so great that they, if they took advantage and we might learn about some small liberated villages in the next few hours. So. Slava Ukraini. <laughs> on that note, this was, this was good fun. Thank you. Um, from Dalbar Rohaj, uh, Giselle Donnelly, and Yulia Zosha. Thank you all for listening to the Eastern Front podcast dedicated to security challenges that have erupted along the line running from the Baltic Sea to the Black Sea. You can find more episodes and additional content on our website, AEI.org, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Please do get in touch with us on Twitter using the hashtag Eastern Front Pod, written as one word. Don't forget to sign up for the Eastern Front's newsletter through the link included in the show notes to receive more content from the Eastern Front. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing, rating, and reviewing us. Thank you, and goodbye.